It's crucial that we address climate change, that we uh, meet our climate change targets for our well-being and, and for the future well-being of our society. But if we meet that, if we manage to hit all of our targets globally for climate change and we fail to deliver gains for biodiversity, we fail to reverse that loss of wildlife that we're seeing um, across the world, then we will have saved the world at the same time as losing what makes it really special. In the last years, we, we've taken such amazing steps within the UK, but we've got to keep reminding ourselves of the couple of points. A, we're just at the start, and even the mandatory approach that doesn't cover all of developments and only covers England. You know, we are the United Kingdom and there's an awful lot of development happening out there that's not approaching biodiversity net gain yet. So it's, it's reminding ourselves that it's the start and then moving forward and not letting go of that ambition. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this week we're revisiting episode 28, Building for Biodiversity. Our original plan was to visit some of the amazing projects that we learned about last year. We wanted to see how developers are putting biodiversity at the forefront of their projects, something that the government is seeking to mandate through the Environment Bill. But of course, like everyone else, we've had to change how we do things as we seek to stop the spread of COVID-19. Instead, we caught up with Tom Butterworth, Technical Director for Biodiversity at WSP, and Dr Julia Baker, author of the first set of Good Practice Principles on Biodiversity Net Gain. And as we did so, something extraordinary began to happen. All over the world, demand for energy plummeted, and global carbon emissions began to fall. As people stayed at home, the earth seemed to breathe a sigh of relief. If we manage to hit all of our targets globally for climate change and we fail to deliver gains for biodiversity, we fail to reverse that loss of wildlife that we're seeing across the world, then we will have saved the world at the same time as losing what makes it really special. And that might sound over the top, but if we think that a good proportion of our food, some say two thirds, is pollinated by insects, and not just all the bees, which are really important, but flies as well, all the other insects that are uh, running around our crops, then it's not just about fantastic places to be, uh, lovely places to walk and nice parks to be in, but it's also about our food, our air quality, how the houses, um, uh, how our places are resistant to flooding. It's about everything that we really deeply value. Imagine, for example, growing up in a world where there is very, very little wildlife. Um, and I know it's an extreme, but I think it helps to imagine an area that has only one species of tree, foxes and cockroaches and rats and no other wildlife in the whole of the country. If you grew up as a child in that environment, that would be very different. It would be a different thing to be a human in that environment compared to the environment we live in, where we've got seals on our beaches and wildcats in our mountains and uh, bats flying through our cities. You know, that, that's, a, that's a very different place. The good news is that preventing biodiversity loss is something that can be done quite easily. So one of the real advantages of biodiversity net gain is everything we're doing counts, both if we're having an impact, but also if we're putting in positive 
things for biodiversity. So whenever we're planting street trees or an urban forest or sustainable urban drainage, a beautiful green area that's able to hold water and decrease flood risk, all of these areas count towards our biodiversity net gain requirements, yes? All of these can be rich in biodiversity. But what that means is thinking carefully about what we're doing so that we are planting the right type of tree. We are um, in the right place in the right way. We are creating the right type of habitat. We don't want to put trees all over areas of deep peat soils that will then dry the soil out and actually release carbon. We, we want to put them into the right place um, so that they are providing multiple benefits. So where are we in terms of this becoming mandatory? Well, up until March, the Environment Bill was progressing through the House of Commons before the committee was forced to suspend its activities. Originally, the bill was expected to be approved this summer, but with the lockdown halting progress and the bill still to progress through the House of Lords, we'll have to wait a little longer for this new requirement. And before we talk about that more, let's go back to last summer when we set out why this was so important for new projects. We're losing our biodiversity at the moment. We've lost something like 30% of the abundance and distribution of all our species across the, the UK since the mid-1970s. And at the moment, we can have developments that are legally compliant, as, as the law stands at the moment, uh, that destroy biodiversity, that have a negative impact on biodiversity. But just as we're starting to realise this massive loss of our, our wild spaces and, and species that we live with, uh, we're starting to realise that they have a really important uh, relationship with us, providing us with pollination services, uh, the ecosystems improving our air quality, our water quality and so on. So there's a whole range of reasons why, why this is important. The requirement for biodiversity net gain then is an opportunity for projects to improve their local environment instead of destroying it. So I believe this is a fundamental shift for ecologists. Starting to deliver biodiversity net gain is going to mean a shift across our whole industry from perhaps standing at the edge of a development uh, and stereotypically saying, no, leave those newts alone or don't touch that, to getting absolutely embedded in the design and the creation of the place uh, together. That's where we're heading. And this is a key point. Ecologists have often been seen as people who slow down development or create extra work for construction teams eager to get going on site. But the hope now is that their skills can be harnessed to make projects better. But before we explore how this can be done, I wanted to know more about what biodiversity net gain means. In simple terms, it's development that leaves biodiversity in a better state than before. So what that means is when you start developing a site you have a look and you assess and you measure the biodiversity on that site. And by the time you've finished your works, the aim is to leave that biodiversity in a better state than what you found it. Dr. Julia Baker is the author of the first set of Good Practice Principles on Biodiversity Net Gain published in 2016 and lead author working with Tom on the practical guidance report that we've already mentioned. She says that the need for biodiversity net gain means two major differences for projects in the future. First, biodiversity is being measured consistently across projects using a standardised metric. And second, developers have to work more closely with local stakeholders such as wildlife groups to find out the local priorities and achieve net gain in a way that suits those areas. And this is very different to how biodiversity has been considered to date. 
It's, it's really been in the last couple of years that the discussion and the practice and the commitment, voluntary commitments for biodiversity net gain have just escalated in a, in a, in a brilliant way. Um, but then earlier this year, the um, Treasury announced that it would make biodiversity net gain mandatory for certain developments in England. So it's not widespread across the board, it's a starting point. It's a really good starting point, um, but it's just really ramped up the, the, the discussions on biodiversity net gain, what it actually means and how we do it. The need to achieve net gain is expected to apply to any new projects going through the normal planning process and will come into effect in the Environment Bill next summer. And I think it, from the, the information that's been announced so far, it looks to be development um, under the Town and Country Planning Act. So what's called permitted development or interply, the development that's outside planning permission but subject to DCO, development consent orders, um, that's probably out of scope as a you know, as at this moment in time. Development consent order is a process by which nationally significant projects like the Thames Tideway or major offshore wind farms attain planning approval. What we're hoping is that this is just the starting point because that's certainly not all development. So it's a great starting point and amazing given all the political uncertainties. But it's, it's really important, I think, to stand firm on the fact that, OK, this is just a starting point and where do we want to take this? Starting with a new metric, because as the old adage goes, to manage something, first you have to measure it. In essence, you need a um, habitat map. So you need a map of the different types of habitats that you have on your site. Um, the number of, of hectares or metres squared of each habitat. Um, and then some information about the condition, but the condition relative to nature conservation. So is it lovely, diverse? Um, which is a high condition for nature conservation, or is it being incredibly um, managed by humans, you know, such as an intensive mowing regime or pesticide use, or is it covered with invasive species? Those kind of things can degrade its condition. But you start off with a habitat map, and most developments that are subject to an ecological impact assessment will have that anyway. So you've already got most of the information you need from the metric. Under the, the sort of the current system, we don't tend to collect um, standardised information on habitat condition. So that is the, the new part, if you like. Um, but when ecologists are on a site establishing the baseline for what they do anyway for impact assessments, um, it's a very streamlined way of just looking at it from collecting information on condition and then including that information. And that information can then be used to calculate the biodiversity metric. And so you'll have the type of your habitat, the condition, the size of your habitat, and then that's, that's what we need to put it into the metric. But Julia warns that understanding what the numbers represent is critical. It's a question of actually looking at the biodiversity units, but then really thinking about it in nature terms. What do those two or five units represent? Is it a critical wildlife corridor? in you know in in a london for example or is it um a great crested new breeding pond or is it the only patch that rare butterflies will forage on so yes look at the numbers it's really important but you've got to make meaning of those numbers and again making meaning of these numbers means working with local groups to understand what species and habitats are a priority 
The good news for industry is that a lot of the research is already undertaken as part of the creation of ecological impact assessments. Development should already be doing most of this. What we're doing now is adding in the measurement, which, as we talked about, and I've seen it transform the way that business looks at biodiversity. You know, if you compare biodiversity to all the other sustainability objectives, such as carbon, waste and water, biodiversity has really lagged behind. You know, it's never had this number. The, the, the metric for biodiversity really does help in a way of gaining traction within the business. This new clarity means that businesses can clearly demonstrate how their net gain was achieved. Julie expects that 10% will be the target. DEFRA have indicated it will be a 10% increase in net gain. Now, what that actually means in terms of is it 10% in each habitat that you affect? Is it 10% overall? You know, we've yet to know the details. Julia says that it's industry that's been pushing government to take action. And in some places, project owners are already pushing ahead with biodiversity net gain. Like this project in Scotland, where ecologists work with local groups to discover that the great yellow bumblebee was under threat. This is Tom again. There's some fantastic work going on in Scotland. And the work that uh, Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks have been doing is really exciting. They've committed to driving forwards biodiversity net gain across their work and, and across their new developments. This is uh, a substation called uh, Thurso South Substation. Um, and what they've done there is really interesting because they've, uh, they've uh, started out with a design for the scheme that was going to have quite a significant impact. Um, and before they actually put that in place, they stopped and st- set back uh, and looked at how they could shift and start to redesign this scheme to enhance biodiversity. This meant working with local stakeholders to understand priorities. One of the key things that they wanted to look at is enhancing local biodiversity. So this was about engaging local wildlife experts to understand what was important and rare in that area. And the great yellow bumblebee was one of the key species for that area. So what they've then done is they've redesigned the whole landscape plan to to make sure that they are following this mitigation hierarchy, avoiding the important areas of biodiversity, minimising their impact wherever possible, and then starting to compensate and to enhance the areas within the substation area to support the great yellow bumblebee. And that meant planting specific species of plants that we know that they feed on and they use. Um, now, this, this is really important. We know our bee populations are under great pressure anyway. And so creating these places that are targeted to support them is, is a really valuable step forward. Enhancing the site to support the great yellow bumblebee meant creating a new wildflower meadow. So what was done is uh, hydro seeding, which is a, a planting of a, a range of species of uh, grass seeds in this case, um, across about 10 hectares. Um, and hydro seeding's using, uh, spreading them out using water. It, it provides a really quick uh, win for the, for the, for the biodiversity because they come in quite quickly and, and, uh, and uh, establish well. This means 10 hectares of flower-rich grassy meadow with differing flowering plants um, uh, that are specific to this area, including things like birdsfoot truffle, red clover and knapweed. Not anything that's massively unusual, uh, but having this large area that's supported and we've got long-term management 
for these species, these, these meadow species, is really, really valuable. And then on top of that, we've got not so much targeted at the, uh, the bumblebee, but in supporting other wildlife, we've got enhanced tree planting with native broadleafs. Um, we've got uh, ponds that are sustainable urban drainage ponds that are also planted with wet and veg vegetation um, so that they're not just sort of deep-sided lakes to manage the water, but supporting amphibians in the area. We've got areas of bare ground, which um, might seem counterintuitive, but these areas of bare ground and rock are really important, especially on the south-facing slopes where they get a little bit warmer, to allow nesting and hibernation habitats for bees and other animals. Um, and then on top of that, so that's all really good stuff, but on top of that there were talks given, toolbox talks they were called, talks given uh, on the site through the construction process to make sure that we were identifying the right things to do in the right place at the right time, the right materials, uh, and make sure that that mitigation hierarchy, that avoidance, minimisation, compensation was played out right the way through. So what this new mandate really does is build on work that ecologists already do on projects by giving them a metric to measure biodiversity and a lever to force clients to make the environmental improvements to protect habitats and wildlife that weren't previously considered necessary. Of course, there's a raft of other legislation that exists to protect specific species and habitats. We've got the Badger Act of 1992. We've got the Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981, which gives protection to a number of species such as uh, reptiles, amphibians, water voles and other animals. And then we've got protection for Euro European species, habitats regulations, which include protection for all species of bats in the UK and great crested newts. So there is a hierarchy of legal protection given to these animals, but also to sites as well. This is Caroline Maganga. She's a senior ecologist at Mott MacDonald, based in Liverpool, and she leads a small team of graduate and junior ecologists conducting habitat surveys and creating a range of ecological reports for clients. She too says that times are changing, and so is the role of the ecologist. In the past, we've been seen to hinder work on site, but actually our job is to make sure that the client is working legally. But to be honest, attitudes are changing now, and people seem to be a lot more environmentally aware, so that is a really good thing. Like Tom and Julia, Caroline's excited about the biodiversity net gain concept and says there's a lot that can be done to ensure that new developments are not at the expense of our natural species. We're getting involved or we're getting asked to become involved with projects now at a much earlier stage and that, that is really good, that is really good prog progress. But I would, always wel I would always welcome any creative approach to increasing biodiversity. It doesn't have to be just just planting planting some grass seed, you know, a commercial grass seed mix. There's so much more now that we can do. It doesn't have to be just planting silver birch. There are so many more things that we can do. Uh, we can create grass wards of different heights, different species. We can plant trees of different ages. We can create wildlife meadows, we can improve watercourses, we can improve water quality. Caroline started her career studying zoology before doing an MSc in ecology and working in Kenya, but she found her niche working on infrastructure projects. 
my first job was working on motorways and I just, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating to see all the things that can be done. You've got, you've got bat bridges, you've got, um, bat overpasses, you've got amphibian tunnels that can go under motorways. Um, there's a lot of data that can be collected that you just don't think about, um, in any other job. So I find that fascinating. I really do. In any other job, it's also unlikely that you'll be trapped in a pond by cows or charged up by rampaging sheep. But that's exactly what's happened to Caroline. Over 10 years ago now, Caroline and a colleague were carrying out a bottle trap survey, checking for the presence of great crested newts at a site along the Welsh border. Bottle trap surveys are a gentle method for testing for the presence of newts. Bottle traps are laid out in the evening and checked in the morning and any newts discovered are then set free. So we spoke to the local farmer because the pond was in a field and it was an L-shaped field and we spoke to the local farmer we said are we all right to go in there? He said oh yeah there's no bother there's just a couple of cows in there you'll be fine. So we went in and there were some trees around the pond. We didn't think anything of it, and there was one cow, and it was like, oh, that you know, the cow wasn't really bothered, that's fine. So we're busy putting the bottle traps in, but what I didn't know, but I do know now, is the cows are incredibly quiet. So we're all busy away putting these traps in, and we, tur- and we turned around, and we were actually penned into the pond by a herd of 100 cows. And we'd not heard them creep creep up at all. And um, cows are also quite inquisitive. So we had our canes and the bin bags, which we have the bottle traps in. And the cows were so fascinated by this that we couldn't leave the pond until the cows got bored of playing with all their boss stuff and moving away. Uh, so that was that was just it was it was just the funniest thing. But there was one cow; it had an ear tag, and I remember this because I just fell in love with the cow ear tag 218 and it was so friendly and obviously we, we, we have to go back to the ponds more than once we have to go back four to six times and each time that i saw this cow it would come over to have it to have an itch and it was really sweet to the point i actually asked the farmer if i could buy it off him because i couldn't stand the thought of it going for meat the farmer said no and as for the sheep caroline says beware they're much more aggressive than they look. Well, you don't think that sheep are going to be particularly angry, but they are the thugs to the farmyard because you go into a field and you think everything's absolutely fine. There's just a couple of sheep grazing and they'll actually run at you and they'll start butting you and you're just, you're not too sure what to actually do because you don't think that sheep are going to do that. You don't think sheep are going to be that aggressive, but they, they, they can be and they are and I've been butted many times by seemingly passive animals. They're quite aggressive when they want to be. Nine months on, more clarity has emerged over the expectations of this 10% increase in biodiversity net gain and how that's going to be measured using the now published biodiversity metric created by Natural England. The first thing is to note that biodiversity net gain is not about numbers. It is about nature and the net gains are um, follow all sorts of good practice principles. Measurable outcomes is just one part of net gain. But certainly the the foundation of net gain is about nature. When you have all all of that foundation in place and then you're looking at the measurable outcomes, um, it is right to say, well, you know, what is the the number or percentage increase that is good practice? 
Now, what we know from DEFRA's communication about its mandatory approach to net gain is that there's a minimum 10% increase above the baseline. And they measure that in what's called biodiversity units, according to the metric issued by Natural England. So a lot of people are talking about this this sort of 10% value. But it's important to remember that that's a minimum. Um, it's, It's not a cap, it's a minimum, and you can do more. But also what's interesting is that many local authorities and many other companies have actually committed to greater percentage increases. So it's it's by no means um, the, the minimum, the standard or what we have to do. Um, but it is something that DEFRA have indicated will be part of the mandatory approach. Tom points to areas of the northwest who he feels have made great progress. I think there's some real value in, in recognising how we need to take this forward at a whole range of different levels. And the example I gave before was a specific site where they were embedding biodiversity net gain and delivering gains for bumblebees. Really, really good and some 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 great work going on. But uh, in uh, Greater Manchester Combined Authority and also the West of England Combined Authority, they've picked up biodiversity net gain and looked to embed this in the work of all of the unitary authorities underneath that combined authority, so that they can coordinate and deliver uh, biodiversity net gain in a uh, efficient and uh, standardised manner across that whole area. So the West of England combined authority, working with the unitaries that sit underneath or sit with within that area, set out a, a climate change emergency. But very importantly, they've flagged that it's not just a climate change emergency, it's an environmental emergency. It's climate change and biodiversity. It's in, we need to recognise this as an emergency for biodiversity as well as climate change. So the emergency that we're facing at the moment is absolutely crucial. But the emergency that's facing us for climate change and biodiversity doesn't go away just because we've got another more pressing issue. And it's not something that can be dealt with just within a six-month window or even a year window. You know, we actually need to to take this forward and shift the way we're working at a systematic level. And so this is where local authorities, combined authorities working together can be hugely valuable because they can standardise the approach, they can set out their ambition, they can communicate that clearly. And we're actually working with developers, with NGOs, with the local authorities together to coordinate how we work so that it's not a shock for anybody that this is something that we can we can deliver together because we all know that this is the right thing this is the the thing the the direction of travel that we need to take if we're going to create fantastic places you know in the future which you know nice places for us to live places that are ready for our future that's crucial Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, editing by John Young. The biodiversity producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Tom Butterworth of WSP and Dr Julia Baker. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps and online at our website engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or share us on LinkedIn.